thing. But I just wanted to thank everyone um, from Toronto who has um, been responsible for putting this together, Dana Seitler and Alexandra Gillespie especially, uh, both whom I've known for a long time. And it's really wonderful to, um, to get this opportunity to speak with you. It's been so long since I was back in Toronto, or indeed anywhere outside of this room, really. So um, the thought of everyone being together uh you know it feels like it's imminent maybe one day we will see each other um in person until then it's just it's just really uh moving and exciting to be around friends in this virtual space so i have a uh presentation i have a um i have a powerpoint which i'm going to put on now i'm going to share with you and as you can see uh the title of the talk has changed um and it is now called uh one weird trick uh feminism realism and the rhetoric of technique so i'm just gonna start before i sh before i get going with the talk i wanted to show you this image which i'm going to talk about right at the end of the talk uh dermatologists hate her for discovering five dollar wrinkle trick from home learn how you can too um and as i said i just wanted that in the back of everyone's head um so that we can um we, we can think about it and, and I'll come back to it in due course. Okay, part one, how to brainwash yourself. <clears throat> I'm gonna be reading part of the introduction to my next book, Pleasure and Efficacy, Psychoanalysis, Feminism and Trans Embodiment. Since this is my first time presenting this work, I'm going to begin by describing a little bit of its genesis by way of a single anecdote, but I hope not to spend too long doing so. I began to take feminizing hormones in January 2018 after many, many years of delay. The day that I took my first dose of spironolactone to suppress my natural testosterone production and estradiol, which supplemented my endocrine system with estrogens, I did not believe that doing so would help me. Indeed, I believed that I was ruling something out and that I would shortly thereafter be able to put aside, if not the drive to transition, then at least the notion that anything meaningful might be accomplished in real life uh, that would in any way represent or actualize that drive. Instead, what I learned was that altering the levels of my estrogen and testosterone profoundly, overwhelmingly, and completely transformed my experience of the world and of myself. The central fact which my experience has ratified over and over again in the years since I began hormone replacement therapy, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Um, in the years since I began hormone replacement therapy is that it's been possible for someone who merely wanted to have been a woman to indeed become one. A metamorphosis from present perfect to present continuous as utterly fantastical as an Ovidian fablio. That transformation has reshaped my intellectual and political commitments. How could it not? I began to question why, indeed, this transformation had seemed so impossible, despite the evidence of trans people writing about their experience for over a century. Though, of course, the introduction of the hormone as the primary vehicle of somatic change was a more recent phenomenon. How had I, who had read widely and enthusiastically in queer theory, failed to take, take seriously the fundamental ontology upon which my own life was being refounded. What I came to realize was that a lot of the reading I had done, while written by queer critics and activists unquestionably supportive of trans people as a verifiable social fact, indeed as trans people's only allies in a world implacably committed to their eradication, were nonetheless stridently hostile to the claims trans people tended to make about themselves. Eve Sedgwick, for example, the indispensable advocate of queer allyship and universality, argued in a 1989 essay that, quote, virtually all people are publicly and unalterably assigned to one or the other gender and from birth, and that therefore gender is not especially apt for critical deconstruction. Sedgwick, as Jules Gill-Peterson and I have both argued, would go on to see gender-affirming care of children as an attempt to eradicate gay children an argument that is now being marshaled by Republican lawmakers in Oklahoma, South Dakota, 
and conservatives in the United Kingdom as an argument for the abolition and in Oklahoma, actually the criminalization of transgender care. I began to understand my work as contesting what I saw as the impossibilization of transition, which I took to be a governing structure of much contemporary thought, both queer and straight. And in order to track the social reproduction of that procedure, I used my, literary, my training as a literary and cultural critic to investigate the historical origins of skepticism about the origins, about the efficacy of a sex change, and to interpret the literary and cultural genres that that skepticism produced, which I tend to think of as romances of intractability. A romance of intractability is a narrative or argumentative procedure, what I might call following Wayne Booth a rhetoric, that endows a given historical problematic with value in proportion to how difficult it is presumed to be to solve. If, for example, one finds the notion of using hormonal transition to solve one's problems too easy, one is engaged in a romance of intractability. I don't cons consider such romances to be uh, dispellable, and obviously, I hope, I don't believe that I have dispelled them. Yet, as I investigated the history of, the romance, of these romances of intractability, I also discovered a feminist counter-history of technique, of tricks passed on by women to women that comprise a body of knowledge written in the margins of theory. These devices emerge despite the notion that the most dignified response to the psychic suffering of women and queers is pious acceptance, yet they do so without congealing into a generalizable system of rationality, without turning into a narrative of personal bootstrapping endeavor, and indeed are as hostile to the claims of techno-rationality as they are to the council of despair. The archive of technique appears as a non-organic, non-totalizable, inductively organized sequence of attempts to improve the lives of women and queers, accredited on the basis of their efficacy, not their elegance, and certainly not on their conformity to macro-epistemic schemes of knowledge. These auxiliary knowledges, the one weird tricks of modernity, are the focal point of this study. And while they are not, auto they are not all defensible, the two I'm going to discuss today are written by an imperialist eugenicist and a manipulative charlatan. They offer us ways to think of collective modes of redress and importantly, the real difficulties that emerge to impede transition and mobility once one relinquishes the certainty of depressive pessimism. That non-synthesized compendium of techniques upon which the attention of my book has been trained, I have called realism. Though this is certainly a usage at odds with other contemporary uses of that already overburdened word, I derive my sense of realism from George Eliot, a Victorian novelist who typifies the term and whose work, as we shall see, strives to learn of a given, of a given situation what might work to ameliorate it. Temperamentally resistant to romantic claims of either revolutionary or conservative type, but no less skeptical, finally, of the mid-Victorian celebration of reform as an historical meta-narrative. Eliot's novels, as well as essays, are replete with pragmatic desires to be assessed on the basis of their efficacy. The novels themselves, indeed, are not to be thought exactly as descriptions, whatever Lukács has to say but rather as protocols for social amelioration. The purpose of each sentence of Eliot's novels is to cultivate empathy and thereby, little by little, to effectuate a more empathetic world. In the rhetoric of fiction, Wayne Booth dwells on this as one of the typical features of realist fiction. More narrowly, in The Antinomies of Realism, Frederick Jameson sees it as an individuating feature of Eliot's bad faith ultimately amounting to a refusal to take a position. Yet I plan, following Sedgwick as it goes, to read realism as far as possible without paranoia and without the fear that those knowledge schemes into which it attempts to induct me are either totalizing, they do not explain everything, nor hostile, they will not make my life worse. 
But if I confess to attempting to animate within realism the erotic frisson that might derive from the fantasy of being brainwashed, I will feel myself safe because George Eliot was unquestionably a trans author and transition, whatever else it may be, can hardly escape the condition of brainwashing and those upon whom it does its work would hardly wish it to. Ex extending the analysis outwards though, cultural historians as distinct as Virginia Gagne and Stuart Hall have characterized the 19th century as in some way, the century of technique. The word first came into use in the 1820s, the historical moment immediately succeeding industrialization, when what Marx and Engels called the charm of pre-industrial labor was still recent enough that its absence could be felt. Yet indeed, within the dominant masculine strain of romanticism, resisting the banalizing isomorphism of industrialism, it was not technique, but its antithesis, that ensured the freedom of man from the enslavement of the factory. In John Ruskin's brief polemic on the nature of Gothic, to take only the most famous example, it was the very imprecision of Gothic architecture that demonstrated the free minds of the laborers who built the great Gothic cathedrals. Masculine crafts, like the masculine bodies that produced them, were to be admired because it resisted, because they resisted technique. It dem they demonstrated that too, true beauty was brute, that it came from a place of non-knowledge, of pure, unsullied roughness. Centuries of sexualized violence extending back and forth from that romance of masculine roughness give feminists ample reason to mistrust the evocations of freedom derived from this romantic construction of the pre-industrial worker. And indeed, later on in this talk, we'll come up with an example of exactly that. Although this romantic opposition to technique was dispersed across Victorian literature and culture, it was confronted and in many cases overwhelmed by utopian new frameworks for deploying technique against the interests of the ruling class. Among those, for example, we could count Matthew Arnold's insistence on the technical precision of cultural criticism against both the liberal utilitarians for whom criticism in general was a feminized luxury and the romantics who saw cultural criticism as an impediment to the spontaneous overflow of human emotion. For Arnold, as for many of the other figures I discuss in my book, technique does not staunch effective flux. Indeed, it is a necessary condition for discharging it. Eliot, meanwhile, took the novelist's technique of representing truth in fiction as the central plank of a broader ethics in which the care taken to represent the motives and interior life of another can generate through the complex processes of identification and displacement, a nourishing sympathetic relation between real beings. My book will move between the development of new genres and rhetorics of technique in 19th century literature and contemporary mass cultural reproductions of the older opposition between masculine roughness and feminine craftiness. Of all of the figures upon which that opposition has been brought into material reality, none is more persistent nor more ruinous than that of the transsexual woman, whose body might be, and frequently is, represented as the site of a literal conflict between latency and labor for control over the organizational meaning of flesh itself. My book explores the trans woman's body as both a figure and a participant within this conflict, describing, for example, the slippage between accounts of trans women as accidentally men and as devious women in arguments about trans women's right to participate in women's sports. And it develops an historical understanding of the figuration of the trans woman as in all cases, an example of surplus technique in the diagnostic and cultural genres in which trans women have appeared, those of autogynophile, serial killer, and invert. I therefore both draw historical connections between classical sexology and contemporary literature and explore the logical necessity of these connections, the configuration of the transsexual woman as both the archetype and the confounding disproof of modern theories of labor. We are primed in many ways to hear such a call as vulgar utilitarianism, as perhaps an extension of the morbid bootstrap logic of murderous neoliberal fantasy. Queer theory has, after all, consistently emphasized the necessity of what Jack Halberstam calls the queer art of failure 
dwelt with Sarah Ahmed in the space of the feminist killjoy, an ontologized depression with Anne Svetkovich, the depressive position with Eve Sedgwick after Melanie Klein, melancholy with Anne Cheng, and gay shame with Eric Stanley, and looking backwards with Heather Love, and various other forms of broken, sad, disenchanted, and negatively oriented psychic, political, affective, and aesthetic formations. So an exhortation to focus on what works might hit less like an invitation to utopia and more as yet another course correction into grad grindism with its cudgels of standardized testing and routinized labor in markets lacking any protection. Yet for trans women, resigning oneself to the queer art of failure can feel alarmingly like the standard assurance that transition is impossible or asymptotic and that one might better spend one's effort accepting one's own eminently theorizable self-difference than learning how to apply eyeliner effectively. You better work, cover girl. The slogan of RuPaul's famous 1993 hit, Supermodel, You Better Work, is both a self-consciously realist assessment of how to pass and therefore to survive in a world in which the lives of black trans women are murderously obliterated and an invitation to demand more than mere survival, to articulate and create with one's black trans body the denied pleasures on the other side of survival. The work RuPaul has in mind after all is neither manual labor nor office drudgery wet your lips and make love to the camera. It's the work of desiring and being desired, of fucking and being fucked. Sex work, femme work, and also, crucially, the work of technique. Don't work harder, wet your lips. In other words, the techniques to which my attention has been drawn are not tailorized recipes designed to produce predictable effects, as though the whole of social relations could be brought under laboratory conditions. They are the skills and techniques acquired through practice, conveyed against and athwart the interests of capital with which feminists, queers, and trans people have made our lives not merely possible, but pleasurable. Not the sex tips that you learn from Cosmo then, but those that you learned from an ex in college, techniques for better masturbation, for developing magical powers, for learning to love yourself. These are the very techniques that patriarchal exhortations to untechnical jouissance have taught us to neglect and whose history and value I seek once more to excavate. In the remainder of this lecture, I will discuss two exemplary texts spanning, well, sort of three, I guess, spanning the century between 1850 and 1950. These are not to be taken as congruent or as pointing to the same politics of technique or even the same style of technique. Their very eclecticism is part of the historical point that the rhetoric of technique has been since the mid 19th century, both ubiquitous and hard to isolate. However, for all their difference, each of these examples does three things. First, they construct a complex address to the reader in order to persuade her that something transformative is happening to her consciousness in the very act of reading. <coughs> Oh my goodness me. <sighs> Second, they attempt to deploy that force in order to subordinate to the regime of technique, a psychic outcome hitherto placed beyond its reach. I could have said that more simply, both of the texts that I'm talking about today, and indeed most of the texts that I talk about in the book, are all um, guides to do some, how to do something that um, hither to their being, prior to their being written, people could, didn't think you could learn how to do. Um, and third, they all draw on the narrative structure of realism in order to engender the changes that they depict. In the first example, the very notion of sexual pleasure itself is rigorously subordinated to a series of learnable techniques and sex transformed from a supposedly spontaneous collision of bodies into a site of labor and skill. And in the second, an anonymized voice works to instill in the reader a quasi-religious experience with the goal of countermanding a putatively primal, indeed materially determined, drive. These two texts then are Married Love by Marie Stopes and the anonymously authored Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Part two, from winning to wooing and back to winning. <sighs> to position oneself as the imagined ideal reader of Married Love, published in 1918, would be to imagine oneself as someone unaware, for example, that the single seduction of a lover does not uh, precipitate her physical arousal in ongoing perpetuity. Um, in other words, uh, the presumed reader of this book believes that once you have successfully aroused your wife a single time, she is aroused in perpetuity. Yet the, the outlandish clumsiness of the text's oafish antagonist is only one, one of the many forms of ignorance that Marie Carmichael Stopes illustrates, illuminates rather, in a book that has been called one of the first modern bestsellers, the most read book on sex of its time, perhaps of any time, and less accurately, the first sex manual for women. Less accurately, because as we shall see, not only is the male reader consistently addressed by the narrative speaker of married love, but his interest is positioned as prototypical. The ignorance in which sex was shrouded, Stopes presumed with cause to be absolute, not only because her bourgeois readers did not know the differences between sexual acts, experiences, desires, and body parts, but because they could not even describe that which they did know. In the words of Stopes' fellow abortion activist, Stella Brown, the conventionally decently brought up girl of the upper and middle classes has no terms to define many of her sensations and experiences. That's, that's in contrast, by the way, with um, what Stella Brown describes her brothers as having experienced. Her, her, um, the well brought up girl's brothers have already acquired what she calls the language of the street, which means presumably that they have gained knowledge um, through um, encounters with sex workers. Married love that thus apportions to itself an enormous and weighty responsibility to endow a generation of householders whom the eugenicist and imperialist Stopes understood as noble sires of empire and of whiteness with a sexual vernacular fit for their racial and class position. In his brief forward, Professor Ernest H. Starling offers a justification for the publication. It is better to acquire knowledge by instruction than by a type of experience which is nearly always sordid, which it take again to be a reference to sex workers. So the implication being that the book is doing the work that otherwise um, encounters with sex workers would be doing. As Laura Doan has shown, a major part of the educative contribution of Married Love was Stopes' entirely original theory of the periodicity of female sexual desire. That is, the notion of a relationship between the menstrual cycle and sexual desire, which Stopes developed first from self-observation uh, and encouraged her women readers to self-observe observe and report. The research they provided, in turn, informed research into the hormonal basis of menstruation in the decade after Married Love was published. Throughout the 1920s, endocrinologists worked to extract and synthesize the three estrogens, estrone in 1929, estriol in 1930, both from pregnant women, and estradiol in 1936 from a pig, which I think is funny. That's the one that trans women get. It was first bred in a pig. But famously, of course, um, estradiol, tra trans women's estradiol was mostly um, came from uh, horses, primarin, from horse urine, but um, first bred in, in pig urine. And Stokes's method, as well as instincts, might form a basis for the untested but widely reported claim by trans women that they experience menstrual cramps. Another important aspect of Stopes' technique might also be approximated to techne in the more familiar sense, her interest in and commercial development of contraceptive technologies. She developed a series of rubber diaphragms and sold them under her own brand name, which was Racial, and also offered homely advice on contraception and home abortion, the two topics on which she received the most voluminous correspondence. Stopes' writing on domestic contraception adopts, as many of her readers have noted, a hominess that recalls the tone and genre of Isabella Beaton's book of household management. Buy a fine-grained rubber sponge, she says in the follow-up, Wise Parenthood, and cut it to a circle about the size of your palm, a little, not too much, smaller, and about the thickness of your own thumb. 
Yet none of this is quite what the uh, pseudonymous reviewer MDS meant when referring to Stopes as an expert in the technique of married life in her review in The Women's Leader in 1923. That expertise, which is the one which drove readers to married love, did not derive from either her impeccable training as a paleobotanist nor her side hustle as an inventor, but from her experience of sexual practice itself. Yet, if it is easy enough to guess at the referent of the phrase technique of married life, sexual skill, it is far harder to excavate from the book itself any such tidbits. There is nothing encyclopedic, nor even especially normative, about the book's many descriptions of satisfying sexual intercourse, and nothing that can easily serve as an analogue or forerunner to the genre of sex tips that historians sometimes trace back to Stopes. For its swooniness, the first chapter begins, every heart desires a mate, Paul Pepys designates married love as an example of sentimental modernism. But even the sentimentality, capacious and effective structure as it is, hardly accounts for the jarring mixture of medicalized candor and tender evasiveness with which Stokes approaches each discussion of mucous membranes. To a reader familiar with Freud's three essays on the theory of sexuality, first translated into English in 1910, Stopes' work might well have appeared glossy, euphemistic, and vague. A.A. Brill's translation of Freud speaks candidly of a variety of sex acts, sexual aims, sexual objects, and the like, while Stopes' imaginative field is wholly restricted to the presence or absence of the female orgasm within the scene of heterosexual married copulation. Stopes herself was evidently powerfully ambivalent about psychoanalysis, describing Freudian practice as, quote, filthy in the extreme in her 1926 book, Sex and the Young. But nonetheless, her close friend, Jenny Murray, sorry, Jessie Murray, Jenny Murray is a presenter of Women's Hour on BBC Four. Um, uh, her close friend, Jessie Murray, who wrote the preface to uh, Married Love, was instrumental in the foundation of the London Medico-Psychological Clinic, an important British landing strip for psychoanalytic thought. More presently for these purposes, one might contrast married love with the trans woman Jenny June's autobiography of an androgyne published the same year, and while similarly couched in the euphemistic Latin of the medical establishment, was which while similarly couched in the euphemistic Latin of the medical establishment, was remarkably candid about sex acts, coining a Latin phrase, in fact, to designate uh, the penetration of June's inguinal canals, the trans sex practice Mira Bellwether as famously called muffing. Um, I will read it out, but you'll have to forgive my rather poor um, Latin speech. Even here, I would be thinking of the soft satin smooth cutis in inguini of my late guest, which I had found gratissima tactioni. Uh, it should be pricertim labiali et linguali. and would regret that it was always to be denied to me to touch again on Vero, this marvelously fine integument. I pined for the repetition of other similar pleasures, which I had for the first time tasted in their fullness only a few weeks before, such as pillowing caput super abdomen out femore nudo adolescentis, the fascinating sight membrum virilis agus erectus, and the extremely smooth surface glandus, gratissima tactioni et digitorum et oris. The phrase with which, which is technique, this is an example of what I'm talking about. Um, the phrase with which Stopes discloses the technique of married love possesses a vaporous sonic quality, an alliterative rhyme that twins two words even as it nudges their meanings apart. Each winning should necessitate a fresh wooing. The denotative sense here is both plain enough, each act of penetrative sexual intercourse should be preceded by the arousal of the vagina and difficult to reckon. Was this really news? Yet that denotative meaning obscures the fact that winning and wooing are, within the genre of sentimental discourse, virtually synonyms, each seeming to indicate a state prior to consummation. The phrase then, each winning should necessitate a fresh wooing, twins the two participle verbs in two ways, phonic and semantic, while differentiating both as chronological sequence and as logical procedure. In both cases, wooing is to precede winning, even though winning is the subject of the clause and has been mentioned first. Syntactically then, the sentence stretches backwards from wooing to winning, pushing the ideas gently apart, as if performing rhetorically the very touch that is being prescribed. 
It might sound fanciful to suggest that the phrase each winning should necessitate a fresh wooing imitates the digital stimulation of clitoris and labia. But after all, the sexual vitality of married love was immediately agreed upon by all its early readers, despite its apparently euphemistic half silence on the very topic, the exhortation for foreplay, for which it was most widely known and read. In other words, the technique with which Stopes's name was immediately associated was not exactly a learnable skill, but a wholly new rhetorical construction of sex. If the intimacy of its address was sensed most vividly in this moment of erotic mimicry, its narrative structure was reinforced and reproduced in the text's very syntax. Sex consists of male labor towards female pleasure, the attainment of which is the enterprise's proper end. Alexander Geppert suggests that the book therefore created a new pressure, a previously unknown demand to achieve a pleasurable and satisfactory sex life, thus raising standards of performance for men and women. Yet this labor was distributed unevenly. Its primary burden was to fall on men for whom sex was to become a hobby or a skill, a transformation that brought out the, the tinkering engineer in many of Stokes's male correspondents. One, a husband from Crewe wrote to her, quote, I have generally waited until the second wave time and then by caresses and love play tried to intensify my wife's longing for connection. If I control it by going too slowly, I don't arouse the sensation at all. And it is only going moderately quick that she feels her nature aroused. Doan is clearly not wrong to say that if some of Stopes readers at least assess female desire in terms of male control. One is left only to contemplate whether the male tinkerer is being created as a fantasy figure for women readers or actually positioned as the book's ideal reader by the text itself. It is surely the latter. Though, as mentioned, Married Love is sometimes described as a woman's book. It was dedicated to young husbands and all who were betrothed in love. Many of the readers with whom Stokes corresponded with were men. The preface came, claims to speak to the nearly normal a phrase which, if it is gendered at all, suggests a hapless male reader more than a dissatisfied female one. The ironic construction of the various chapters also suggests a male addressee. The chapter entitled Women's Contrariness, sorry, Woman's Contrariness, for example, begins with a narrative fable about the average man who marries happily and hopefully a girl well suited to him, presenting with careful eleotic precision his mental state as he observes her. Gnawing at the very roots of his love is a hateful little worm, the sense that she is contrary. The, chap the chapter's protagonist is himself subject to a certain kind of ironic counter-observation from the nar narrator's perspective, but the contrariness of the woman is simply explained. It is the product, indeed, of her rhythmic sex tide, the menstrual cycle which governs her sexual desires more fundamentally than his conduct could. It is difficult to imagine what the narrated contrary woman could gain from such a narrative, perhaps simply fodder to share with her husband. But to the male reader, the revelation of the menstrual basis of his wife's sexuality is both morally reassuring and aesthetically satisfying. In, in other words, despite Stokes' sentimental idiolect, the realist mechanism of married love depends upon the reader's identification with husband rather than wife, the sole protagonist of sexual intimacy. This conclusion is not to undermine the feminist value of a text explicitly concerned to elevate and center female pleasure, but rather to observe that the cost of that centralization is a secondary objectification of women, no longer now as object of men's will, but rather as object of men's skill. We are perhaps so used to reciting Foucault's phrase, putting sex into discourse, that we underestimate how unpredictable were the effects of the late 19th and early 20th century attempt, not merely to describe sexual desire, but to bring something of sex itself into the very rudiments of speech and language. Here, for example, Stokes' construction of a rhetoric of sexual technique depends upon a strange substitution of sexual objects for language, as in the winning-wooing pair and the creation of a new mythic emplotment of pleasure as a field of ingenuity and endeavor. Stokes's narrative framing of sex as male labor towards female pleasure recreates heterosex as an ontogenetic recapitulation of the phylogenesis of heterosexuality as such, so that the climax, a term sexology draws from narratology rather than vice versa, of sexual activity, corresponds with the social reproduction of what Stokes relentlessly calls the race.
Yet the climax of heterosexuality can hardly, even in Stokes's own terms, be so simple. Since one can imagine the plot of heterosexual coupling with anywhere between zero, nobody comes, and two, partners come sequentially, terminal events. Thus the technique of sexual foreplay discloses its asymptotic relation, uh, motivation, not because foreplay is interminable, but because the singularity of climax and therefore the singularity of heterosex can never be taken for granted. Oh, part three, it works, it really does. Though one could hardly say that Alcoholics Anonymous is a misnomer, uh, the title of the so-called big book after which the groups and movement are named will mislead some people encountering it for the first time, since the consumption of alcohol, while it uh, occupies an important narrative place in AA's discourse, has nothing whatsoever to do with the technique or indeed the final purpose of the 12 steps. The author of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, imparts these steps early on in the text, the main part of which is a, pac a patient, although uneven, exegesis of them. Uneven because step two is granted a whole chapter, while st steps six and seven must share a paragraph. The steps work not to prevent the initiate from drinking, but to synthesize a quasi-mystical experience through the cultivation of a daily spiritual practice. That experience is then endowed with the power to keep the alcoholic sober, but sobriety is a secondary effect of spiritual enlightenment and one only observed, one only obtained uh, in the late stages of the steps after step 10, by which time we will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame where it could refer either to the liquor or the temptation. If AA works then, it does so through a complex mode of address in which the presumptively anonymous authors of a book, in reality one person, Wilson, speak as a we that hails and eventually absorbs the reader, who thereby acquires the solution to her problems by virtue of joining an imaginatively introjected discourse community, a we that has already solved them. Scholars have long connected the hydraulics of sympathy upon which such a mechanism depends with those of 19th century realism. Robin Warhol in particular has connected the 1939 text of Alcoholics Anonymous with George Eliot's early story, Janet's Repentance, which Warhol persuasively frames as the first modern recovery narrative, albeit that modern in this sense has the slightly unusual meaning of treating alcoholism as does AA as the hinge between spiritual and medical maladies treatable only by mystical overwhelm. As Susan Zeger argues, Eliot's story coincided with the medicalization of alcoholism, after which, like Foucault's homosexual, the alcoholic was now a species. Bill Wilson delivers Bill's story as the first chapter of the big book. Prior to introducing the 12 steps in the third chapter, how it works, the it as the theological intermediary of the we and the you, where it can mean both God or the steps or the God who is imminent to the steps. Wilson offers an account of the structural purpose of the narrative parts of the book. Our stories disclose in a general way what we are like, what happened and what we are like now. Disclosure in a general way, such too is the paradoxical condition of realist characterization as Catherine Gallagher outlines it in her landmark essay, George Eliot's Imminent Victorian, in which she describes the novelist's conflicted attitude towards indulging the sensuous intimacy of narrative sympathy and the necessity of making characters precisely interchangeable, diagrammatic, empty. The deployment of narrative sympathy in which AA moves towards a goal as individ individualistically transformative as the incalculably diffusive powers of Eliotic sympathy, but with a twist. Instead of founding an ethical revelation, founding an ethical relation on the experience of readerly difference from character, Wilson's address seeks to dissolve the reader in an experience of readerly sameness in which the reader can understand herself as already represented, her own desires and secrets disclosed in a general way by the text of Alcoholics Anonymous. The intention of producing readerly sameness is intensified by various forms of discursive paratext, as when, for example, attendees of an AA meeting are invited to, quote, take what you like and leave the rest, to simply absorb the aspects of the text which already feel like sameness and ignore those that feel alienating or differential. 
As Married Love mobilized the putatively feminine idiolect of sentimental fiction, Bill's story self-presents as a boy's story from the beginning. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. The first sentence begins in war and ends with heroic, a picaresque narrative of roguish pleasures, capacitated perhaps by the invisible reproductive labor of those citizens who took us to their homes and delivered an entirely vague asyndeton, a generalized recipe of masculine glory, love, applause, war. The Gatsby-esque retrospective inflects inevitably, quote, in October 1929, when Wilson, having made a pile as a stockbroker, now loses it and turns to alcohol as solace, narrating the objective events and their subjective ramifications in the same sparse prose. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. The pizzicato rhythm of these sentences echoes the ticker tape, beating out its mechanical and minimal messaging of financial ruin. And just as the self-aggrandizing alcoholic blurs his cognitive process into the rhythm of history itself, so the reader allows herself to be given up into the widening slipstream of sympathy. AA's many defenders often argue that the emphasis on interchangeability in narrative terms on the substitution of the reader for the narrator differentiates the group from self-help movements because its destination is not an empowered ego, but a we connected only by powerlessness. Mariana Valverde suggests that to this extent, AA indirectly subverts the neoliberal discourse of personal entrepreneurship and personal improvement. And Warhol adds that no one profits from AA's activities and no wealth can accumulate within the groups. I'm not so sure that the refusal to avow ego restoration as the goal of a spiritual procedure subverts the logic of capital, which after all depends upon the escalating ontologization of compulsion as a basis of market rationality. But it is notable that, unlike Stopes, Wilson never sold gadgets or doohickeys and declined offers of capital investment from, among others, Nelson Rockefeller when fearing that AA's expansion would compromise the group's independence. What is remarkable, however, is the degree to which AA's work is effectuated by a psychotheological power named IT, whose force is indeed governed by the physics of imminence, a desire for which Gallagher attributed to Eliot. The chapter introducing the steps, how it works, where it seems to refer to a program of recovery, but the phrase it worked or it works has already come up in Bill's story, where it is passed on by the anonymous man whom we know to have been Abby Thatcher, who has tried out a practical program of, of action as the result of a revivalist Christian outreach, and the result was self-evident, it worked. By the time the text of Alcoholics Anonymous was published, Ebby's sobriety had already lapsed, but he died sober, cared for by Wilson in 1966. Later, however, what works is not the program, but prayer. We shouldn't be shy on the matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works. And then later, after elaborating the psychically easing consequences of prayer and meditation in a paragraph all on its own, it works. It really does. Like every winning necessitates a fresh wooing, it works as both euphemistic and performative in the elocutionary sense. The phrase does something imminently that is more than hortative. It works closes the gap between attempt and outcome, such that the it that works becomes none other than the we that is working. The point of prayer, after all, is, acclimate the one to, is to acclimate the one praying to the gap between desire and experience, so that we are careful to make no request for ourselves only, and quote, we are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. What works is a purposive dampening of the psychic drive towards efficacy, technique as mere practice, without expectation of reward. 
In that sense, Eliot's position as a forerunner of the genre of AA-style recovery narrative depends less on Janet's repentance then and more on the more mature Eliot's experiments with animism in Mill on the Floss, where the collision of active and passive models of desire radiates disastrously between characters and landscape, and empathy in Romola, whose anti-hero Tito bears a certain degree of resemblance to one of Wilson's sex, sorry, sex, self-exculpating drones, um, pre-bottom. Tito never reaches his bottom, I guess. One of the major plots of Middlemarch, indeed, depends upon one another one of Eliot's introspective and self-deluding men, in this case, N Nicholas Bulstrode, making a judgment over whether allowing an alcoholic access to alcohol constitutes an act of murderer, murder, an ambiguity that depends upon whether one thinks that an, alcohol's, an alcoholic's consumption to, compulsion to drink is a law of nature, or that the alcoholic's no doubt attenuated capacity for self-control could still, in principle, keep him from poisoning himself. George Eliot's mother, Christiana Evans, several biographers have speculated, may have been an alcoholic herself. Others have pointed out that the prevalence of drunk and stoned characters in Eliot's fiction allows the, narrate, the novelist to explore states of partial volition and to narrate compromised but not vitiated freedom of will, like those of John Raffles and, differently, of Bulstrode himself. Beyond the odd Poor Janet, by contrast, Janet's Repentance, the last printed of Eliot's three scenes of clerical life, makes no especial play for its readers' sympathies, casting a rather Dickensian mix of satire and sentiment upon the Trollopian plot of Janet Dempster, her violently and drunkenly abusive husband, Robert, and her eventual confessor and pastor, Mr. Tryon. Yet the dramaturgy is pure AA. The husband's drinking catalyzes the wife's until she flees in terror for her life. One is left wondering what repentance the narrator will deem necessary or even possible. And Tryon is brought before her as a fellow sinner to express the hopelessness of her alcoholism. I feel sure that demon will that demon will always be urging me to satisfy the craving that comes upon me. And the days will go on. I shall always be doing wrong and hating myself after, sinking lower and lower and knowing that I am sinking. Mr. Tryon, as Ebby Thatcher, replies, yes, dear Mrs. Dempster, there is comfort, there is hope for you. Believe me, there is, for I speak of my own deep and hard experience. Ten years ago, I felt as wretched as you do. I think my wretchedness was even worse than yours, for I had a heavier sin on my conscience. From there on, her repentance practically complete, Janet returns to her alcoholic husband, who is deranged on his deathbed, having been run over by a horse and gig. After which things are polished off expeditiously. Robert dies, Mr. Tryon moves in and then dies. Janet lives a life of sober contemplation. Eliot's depiction of the scene of alcoholic conversion includes two complications absent from Bill Wilson's more macho version. First, Janet's addiction seems to have derived from Robert's in some sense. And second, the sins for which she must repent are not self-evidently moral harms at all. The problem from Janet's perspective is that the admission of powerlessness over alcohol that begins Wilson's journey into grace means something different to a swaggering male Wall Street broker and a violently threatened female victim of spousal battery. That is to say, to a subject whose powerlessness is an interjected spur to spiritual reflection and one whose all too familiar powerlessness is socially reproduced. Yet by virtue of Eliot's awareness of that very complication, one can detect in the concluding passages of Janet's repentance, the distant imagining of sexual transposition, of a male alcoholic becoming, by virtue of his having been made powerless by alcoholism, a kind of psychic woman, or more teasingly, the spectre of a female alcoholic becoming, by virtue of her recovery, a kind of psychic man. Robert Dempster's deathbed scene is one of the most lect lexically and syntactically imaginative sequences in Eliot's oeuvre, a series of paratactical ejaculations in which he rages at his ecclesiastical rivals. I'll make them say the Lord's Prayer backwards. I'll pepper them on the, so that the devil shall eat them raw. And consistently, animated and animalistic hallucinations concerning his wife's transformation into various figures of horrific cross-sexed and cross-species menaces. Stop her, she wants to drag me away into the cold black water. Her bosom is black, it is all serpents. They are getting longer, the great white serpents are getting longer. This vision of his wife's black bosom transforming itself into a long white serpent 
does more than manifest to a dying man the transsexual metamorphosis he cannot produce in his own body. It also, and more satisfactorily, provides evidence to the wife who in fact sits by his side unnoticed by the deranged man that her transgender metamorphosis from economic dependent to soon to the heir to a fortune has left her unrecognizable to the man she has fled. Part four, this is not a joke. This is really happening. And I'm not gonna go on for much longer, don't worry. Neither Stopes' activism for sexual satisfaction nor Wilson's organizing towards collective reprieve from alcoholism explicitly concerns transition in the sense which I used at the start of this lecture. It is striking though, how imaginatively proximate the idea of a sex change feels, at least to Stopes and to Eliot, to those attempting to lay down pro protocols for achieving the impossible and for making those protocols practicable and verifiable. Nor is either strictly self-help in neither case does this self-empowerment occupy an important role in the techniques being imparted. In neither case is a bootstrap narrative deployed to celebrate the strength and power of those who survive despite their disadvantages. Neither Stopes nor Wilson was especially disadvantaged, both members of a wealthy white professional class whose bootstraps were hardly worth pulling. AA is more usually classified as a mutual aid organization. Stopes' endeavors were part of the wider eugenics movement, articulated with the imperial state rather than an organ of it, with some commercial endeavors of her own. I offer these caveats because I found that people have sometimes tended to suppose that the work I've been researching falls into the broad category of self-help literature, woo garbage and the stars down to earth, which strikes me as a fundamentally different class of enterprise. Whether or not they produce saleable goods, as in Stopes's case, or remain wholly non-profitable, as in Wilson's, the techniques of transformation I have been discussing are not, in general, interested in active accounts of discipline or the attainment of pleasure by ever-intensifying exertion. Rather, one of the characteristic features of the rhetoric of technique is the insistence that one work less, that working smarter rather than harder will get results, that indeed the intensification of mere effort may be a defining characteristic of the problem one is trying to solve. One can then object to Paul Pepys's observation that Stopes sexes middle-class women, marriage, and love by marrying a feminine literary language to a masculine technical language. If, techniques, if technique in Stopes has a gender, it is feminine. By way of concluding my lecture then, I'm going to offer a couple of thoughts on the image with which I opened dermatologists hate her, sometimes thought to be the origin of the one weird trick model of, or, of online advertising. Of course it isn't. The origins of that genre <coughs> of sales pitch must at least predate Christina Rossetti's poem, Goblin Market, and are likely to be traceable to the origins of the word commodity, whose etymon means commodious, easy, or too easy. Cian Nye, of course, traces a connection between literary device and commodity form in theory of the gimmick, developing an account of the gimmick as a form we marvel at and distrust, admire and disdain, whose affective intensity for us increases precisely because of this ambivalence. Yet the weird trick is unlike the gimmick in one important particular. One never sees it or learns the first thing about it beyond its hypothetical existence. Clicking the link attached to this image, for example, would lead one to a series of interminable click-through pop-ups, after which one would in turn perhaps land on a 20-minute embedded video in which the rhetorical gas would be pumped up with, again, only perhaps, finally a sales pitch for a new book or cream or investment opportunity. The image presented as evidence of the one weird trick is self-evidently impossible, a mythic dream of transformation without obvious, participating, without obvious participation in the sale or trade of circulating goods. What is being mimicked in this image indeed is not finally the use of a commodity, but the transformation of the body as the horizon of historical becoming itself. The image depicts transition as not merely possible, but inevitable, as inevitable as the shedding of one's epidermic cells. Thank you.